Amen. Behold our God. What a, what a great thought this morning as we come to think about the supremacy of Christ. And indeed to think about what it means when I say Christ alone, or what Paul means when he says Christ alone. If you were with us last week, you know that we looked at the first verses, verse, really verses 9 through 14 of this first chapter of Colossians, and just looked at the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. We knew that he was, it was a church that he did not start. Probably Epaphras had started it. And now Epaphras has brought Paul word of what's going on in Colossae and how the church is maturing and growing. But he also brought him word that there were some problems there. It brings me great comfort to know that it's not just the 21st century church that has problems. Even the early church did, the first church. There were always things going on that had to be dealt with. And the Apostle Paul is doing that in a very gentle and very caring way here. But nonetheless, he wants to attack those problems head on. You see, there were, there were people in the church there at Colossae who were saying, you know, Jesus is important. Jesus is of utmost importance. matter of fact, Jesus is supreme, they would say. But at the same time, they would say, you must trust Jesus, but you also must get a deeper knowledge. These were known as the Gnostics. You, you have to have a deeper knowledge of things. You'll, you'll go into a deeper life as you begin to do our rituals and go through our rites and, and begin to believe things that we teach you that are totally contrary to and totally outside of the bounds of the gospel and the truth that was once delivered to them through the Apostle Paul, through Epaphras, as they started that church. So, People were being confused. They were being confused about what in the world is it that, that Christianity really is and, and who in the world is Jesus really. And so Paul wants to address that in the passage we're going to look at today starting in verse, verse 15. But last week I, I talked about that prayer and how it affects our Christian walk and how it affects or how the supremacy of Christ affects our prayer life. And, and Paul prayed first but always pointing to the fact of Christ's supremacy. Always showing that that's where he was going to come back to this again and help them to understand. Verses 12 and really 13 and 14 sort of served as a bridge, if you will, uh, between the prayer Paul prayed for them and the discussion of the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. It's kind of a bridge verse. He, in those two verses, he just simply talks about what Christ has done for every believer. And man, has he done something phenomenal and something that is great. He says there in verses 13 and 14 that he's delivered us from the dominion of darkness. What is the dominion of darkness? Well, it's walking in darkness. It's living in darkness. It's walking in the realm of the, the one who rules the darkness, and that is Satan, the enemy, the one who who tempted in the very beginning and caused the fall that brought about all the sin in the world. We were in Adam and in our natural state, we were in darkness. And, and we did not know God. We, we could not know God of our own innate ability. And, and so Jesus comes along and by his power, he delivers us out of the realm of darkness, out of the domain of darkness into the, into the kingdom of his beloved son. At other places, Paul talks about, he delivered us out of darkness into light. He gave us understanding. He gave us enlightenment that we might see who Christ is and see what the Christian life is. And so we have those two verses. He, he, he delivered us from dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. And then secondly, he says, he has redeemed us, bought us back, paid the price that had to be paid 
in the cross, by the cross, and through the cross, that we might be redeemed or bought, brought, bought back. That's a tongue twister. Bought back. And in doing that, Paul says, in redeeming us, he has brought about the forgiveness of our sins. We are forgiven. And we dealt with that just briefly at the end of the sermon last week. What, what a glorious truth that is that our sins, past, present, and future, our sins that blocked our relationship with God have been forgiven. And then beyond that, as we'll see later in this book, we have been clothed in His righteousness. We have been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God looks at us, He doesn't remember our sins. He doesn't remember them against us. But He sees us through the eyes and in the eyes of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul points us to in this passage this morning. If you will, hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. I want you to see something as we make this transition into talking about the, the preeminence of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And I want you to think about it in terms of that early church in Colossae as well as the 21st century church in America and, and indeed around the world. The big question Paul is wanting the Colossian Christians and wanting you and me to confront this morning is this question. Who is Jesus? Now, now, I want you to think about that. Who do you think Jesus is? When I ask you that, who is Jesus? What pops to your mind? I'm sure for some of you, it's, well, he's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the Lord. I mean, there are all sorts of things that come to our mind that might not be anything more than just Sunday school answers. What do I mean by a Sunday school answer? It's that that we've been taught over and over and over and, and, and people have expected us to answer and so we just come forth with those. But I want you to think about that question a little more in depth this morning if you would. Who do you think Jesus is? Who is this one who made claims when he walked on the face of the earth to be the very Son of God, to be God incarnate? The one who could say, the Father and I are one. God and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Who in the world is Jesus? Jesus thought that was a pretty good, important question. That, that one time in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples that. I remember back in 2016 when I went to Israel and, and for the first time ever and was traveling around the countryside looking at the various sites where Jesus was. And we came to Caesarea Philippi. And I've always just thought about, well, Jesus was walking around Galilee, and, and, and here was Caesarea Philippi. And so they walked out, and they, 
they, they said, well, here's, here's a good place. Let me ask you a question. Right outside the, the city gates, perhaps, even of Jerusalem. But when we traveled to Caesarea Philippi, we got on a bus and we traveled over an hour on a bus to get to Caesarea Philippi. When we got there, we saw all of these various shrines that had been unearthed by archaeologists. There were shrines to all sorts of gods, all sorts of images, all sorts of idols were all around that place. And we talked about the various gods that were there. And then we went down into a little garden and one of the men on our trip had the opportunity to do the devotional there and he went to Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asked his disciples that question who do men say that I am you know you're you're out and about the countryside disciples you're going and getting food and and other things for us what are you hearing what's the word on the street as to who I am now remember they're sitting in Caesarea Philippi surrounded by all sorts of false gods all sorts of idols and they begin to answer him they said well some say you're John the Baptist and others say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. You know, we, we, they got all sorts of ideas about who you are. And he, he said, well, that's, that's true. And, and, you know, as we look around our culture today, if you ask many people, who was or who is Jesus Christ? Some might answer you and say, well, he's a figment of imagination. He never even existed. Well, that's kind of hard to really hold on to if you study history at all because he's mentioned throughout quite a few of the writings of the early Jewish writers not Christian writers and they they talk about him being worshipped as a god by some people that 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 even after they crucified him and so but today some will say well I just don't even believe Jesus existed I think the early church got together and made that up well we dealt with that on Easter just a little bit so I won't go back to that they said well others say you're John the Baptist today others say well he's He's certainly a, a, a prophet of some sort. He certainly ought to be put on the same level with other prophets that are recognized by other religions. Why, he's a, he's a great prophet. That's what they were saying in Jesus' day too. John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of those. Others that were saying in Jesus' day, well, he's a teacher. And boy, what a teacher he is. He brings great moral truths to light that many have forgotten or many never knew. He's, he's a great moral teacher and today people say well i i believe jesus teachings are true i you'll hear it quoted by politicians and you'll hear it quoted by uh unbelievers alike who say you know we uh i believe that jesus said love your neighbor as yourself and and that's the part of the scripture that they center on or are doing to others as you would have them do unto you the golden rule you know those are those are great moral teachings of jesus Sometimes they even throw in some that aren't there, like God helps those who help themselves. And that's not anywhere in Scripture, by the way, but in our world they'll say, oh, Jesus certainly taught that, didn't he? No, he didn't. Truth is, our culture is confused, as confused as many in Jesus' day and many in Paul's day, with exactly who Jesus is. But I contend to you this morning that that is the most important question that you will ever ask. That is the most important question that you will ever answer in your life. Who is Jesus Christ? And it's a question we all have to face. I I remember one of my favorite quotes of C.S. Lewis. Uh, He made the statement this, and he's talking about Christianity, but it relates to Jesus because Jesus Jesus Christ is Christianity. He's the heart of it. He is the essence of it. Uh, Any Christianity that does not accept him as Lord is no Christianity at all. But Lewis said this, he said, Christianity 
if faults is of no importance. The Apostle Paul said that in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. He said, listen, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, if that's all a hoax, then we're wasting our time talking about him. We're, we're believing in vain, and our preaching is in vain, and our lives are in vain. And, and Lewis said, if Christianity is false, it is of no importance whatsoever. We're wasting our time. He said, but if it's true, it is of infinite importance. It is of importance beyond anything we can imagine because it doesn't just affect our life here, but it affects our lives for all eternity. And that's why the people who say, well, you know, if you follow Jesus now, even if it's not true, you haven't lost anything. If you follow Jesus now and it's not true, you've lost everything. There is nothing to gain. Because believing in Christ, believing in Christianity, believing in Him is of infinite importance. Lewis concluded that quote by saying this, The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Christianity is false, it's of no importance. If Christianity is true, it is of infinite importance. If the only thing we cannot say is that it's just moderately important. It's either not or it is. There's no middle ground there. And Paul wanted the Colossian Christians to realize that when he comes to this passage. It's amazing that you can almost parallel the, uh, the six verses we read here. The first three, 15 through 17... Uh, you find just, just kind of talking about uh, and having phrases that you find in 18 through 20. You, you find things like, He is, and firstborn, and by Him, and for Him, and in Him, and, and on the heaven and earth. All, all these things kind of parallel because he's, he's talking about Christ really in two dimensions there, in two ways there, to show His supremacy and to show His exclusivity. This is what Paul says. He says, He, that is Christ, the Redeemer, the one who has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, this one Jesus who brought forgiveness of sins is the image of the invisible God. He is the image, Paul says, of the invisible God. In, in verse 18 he says, He is the head of the body. Two He is is there. And both of those I want you to understand are in the emphatic when Paul says it. Paul could, this could easily be translated, he and he alone is the image of the invisible God. There is no other image bearer of the, the completeness of the image of God that he talks about later, having the fullness dwelling within him. He alone is the image of the invisible God. Now, what does that mean when we talk about the image of the invisible God? Does that mean that in a crass literalist, way we look at the person of Jesus in the flesh embodied and we say well that's what God looks like even though he's a spirit in heaven no image there doesn't necessarily mean that it is the exact representation it could also be translated he's the exact manifestation when he is the exact image he is the exact he is the perfect manifestation of God the father because He is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. And Paul says, I want you to see that. I want you to understand that because it is of absolute, complete importance. He and He alone shows us who God is. And, and so in these verses, the Apostle Paul, I think, wants us to see basically four things here. And he wants to see what Lewis is talking about 
that Christ and Christianity are of infinite and ultimate and complete importance above everything else. First thing he wants us to see is that Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of creation. Those first three verses, when he talks about him being the image of the invisible God, when he talks about him being the firstborn of all creation, now that's a tricky phrase. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. I want you to hang on to that. When he talks about him being the firstborn of of all creation, and, and that by him were all things created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In those three verses, Paul takes us back to Genesis 1 and beyond, earlier, when he says, He is the exact image of the invisible God. He is the exact manifestation of the invisible God. Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, is very God, the very God of creation, And it was through Christ and by Christ and in Christ and for Christ that all things were created. He is the Lord of creation. That word Lord is so significant and so important in the the writings of the Apostle Paul, indeed of all the New Testament writers. Jesus is never presented as just some sort of a, a panacea that says, comes in and says, all your sins are forgiven, now go your own way and do your own thing. No. He says, Jesus is Lord of creation. That is, He rules over all of creation. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. He is the only one who has authority over everything. He is Lord. That's why it's so important in our walk with Christ that we understand what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 10 when he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Because that's saying, I recognize, He was He was at the creation. The creation was by Him, through Him, and for Him. He is the sovereign God in the flesh. Uh, He's very God. He's not anything in any way less than God. Even while He's walking around in the flesh, even while He's incarnate, those men and women in in Galilee 2,000 plus years ago, were able to see a manifestation of the true and the living God that we can really only read about in His Word. But His Word is pointing us to what took place those 33 or so years that He was on the face of the earth. It's so important. He is the Lord. Paul wants us to understand, and some in Colossae were saying, well, He's the highest of created beings. There, there's... When he was created, he was created higher than anything else. Folks, he was not created. He was begotten by the Father. He's not a created being. There wasn't a time when Jesus wasn't. There was never a time when Jesus, the one born as an infant in in the cradle, there's never been a time when he wasn't. He has always been. He's not a created being. He's not simply a great man. He's not simply a good man who gave great moral teachings. He's not a good moral teacher. He's not a philosopher. I I saw a book not long ago on a shelf in a bookstore, uh, a secular bookstore, that said, Jesus the philosopher. And basically what it does is it tries to take all all the supernatural out of his life and give you his philosophy of life. Thomas Jefferson wanted to do that with his own Bible. He 
he went through his Bible and cut out passages that dealt with, uh, uh, with supernatural things, miracles, and, and he cut out the whole, cross, uh, whole resurrection after the cross. He, just, he said that we don't need all that. That's all, that's all too much, uh, too much uh, supernatural stuff there. I, we don't want to see Jesus as a natural philosopher. Well, I think you can find great philosophy in the teachings of Jesus, but it's subordinate to who he is. He's not a prophet, although he is a prophet, but he's not just a prophet. And, and he's not anything else other than very God. He is the God of all creation. He is the God of everything that there is. And Paul is laying that out in those first three verses. He is the Lord of creation. And, and I love how he ends that in verse 17. He is before all things. That's his pre incarnation existence for all of eternity he's before all things but in that last phrase in him all things hold together in him all things hold together he not only created it but he sustains it if jesus were to take his hands off of this world you think the pandemic of coronavirus is bad that's a that's a cupcake compared to what would happen if he takes his hand off, the, the molecules, the atoms would just totally separate and go their own way. We would just totally disintegrate. He created it, and by his power and by his grace, he holds all things together. And folks, that's something that's true for every single person on the face of this planet. That's something that's true whether you acknowledge it or not. You know, there's a lot of talk about, well, somebody, people just need to come and, and make Jesus Lord. You can't make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You can submit to his lordship. You can bow before his throne. You can acknowledge that he is who he says he is, but you can't make him anything but what he is. You can't make him anything because he is who he is, and he's the king. He's the God of creation. So Paul says, I want you to see Jesus as the Lord of creation. And then in verse 18, he kind of shifts gears just a little bit, but he keeps the same thought. He says, we know that he's Lord of creation and the sustainer of creation, but I want you to see you who have put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, that he's Lord of the church. He's head of the church, head of the body, the church. Now, I always love Paul's imagery when he talks about Christ being the head of the body. And when he talks about the church being the body of Christ on this earth today, that, that the church is his body at work. But never forget, a body that is headless is useless. A body that is headless is dead. So any church that is not seeing Christ, acknowledging Christ for who he is, the head of the church, may claim to be a church, but they're not a church at all. They're no more than a social gathering. They're no more than a, a group getting together for some religious activity. But they're not the church if indeed they do not see Jesus Christ as Lord of that church. In five weeks, uh, Grace Baptist Church will have a new senior pastor. Uh, in five weeks, someone will be installed to stand in this pulpit week after week as I have for the 13 and a half years of, of our church. But I want you to understand a very significant thing. Never for these 13 and a half years have I felt like I was head of the church. 
And never, as he takes the position of senior pastor, senior shepherd, never will Todd Meadows think that he is the head of this church. If he does, it's dead. If I do, it's dead. Jesus Christ is the head. He's the one we are to consult. He is the one we are to look to, to guide, to lead, to direct. And you know, we just need to acknowledge that, folks. Every church in this land, every church in this world that's been playing games of entertainment and playing, playing games of motivation and been playing games of kind of trying to make everybody just happy-clappy had better examine what Jesus would have the church to be. Because we're being tested right now through the coronavirus. We're being tested as to what is a church and what will the church be. So Jesus says, I, uh, Paul says, I want you to see that Jesus is the head of the body, the head of the church. He's the brain. He's the, he's the control center. And we need to look to him and to his word. That's what we have. He's the giver of life. Him as Lord, him as head is the only way a church can have life and not just be a, a rigid, legalistic, materialistic body that gets together to see who they can impress on a Sunday morning. That's not the church. The church is a group of people who come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under the headship of Jesus Christ, and bow before him and no other man, no other authority, no other king, no other president. They come and they bow before the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You can come in rags. You can come in your best suit. You can come wearing a tuxedo or you can come wearing flip-flops and cut-off jeans and holes in your sweatshirt. Neither one is coming properly and properly dressed if they're not coming submitting to the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, the guy in cut-off jeans and holes in his sweatshirt and flip-flops can be worshiping, and the one dressed in Sunday finest cannot be. You can be there just to try to impress. That's pride. The other is humility. And I really believe, and, and maybe I'm glad that I'm not going to be a senior pastor much longer, but I really believe that part of why God is letting this coronavirus do what it's doing. You can argue about all the other dimensions of it. But I think part of it is to humble his people. To humble us before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You need to consider that. You need to consider, are you bowing before him and saying, Lord, you direct me? Are you saying, Lord, I got this. Give me, give me salvation. Give me heaven when I die. But I'll take care of everything right now because I can do it. There's vast difference in that. One is true Christianity. One is false Christianity. He is the head of the church. He's head of the body. In verse 19, Paul goes on to say, he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
That means he was no less God when he was in the flesh as when he ascended back into heaven. He was no less God when he was in the flesh or ascended back into heaven than he was in his pre-incarnate existence with the Father in, in, in glory before the foundation of the world, before time ever began. He has never ceased to be the, the fullness, the completeness of God. But while he was on this earth, in a body, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The church at Colossae struggled with that. And, and they, they wanted to say, well, sure he was fully God when he was pre-incarnate. And surely now that he's ascended, he's back in glory, back in heaven, he's, he's, uh, he's fully God. But, but while he was here, folks, if he were not fully God while he was in the flesh, the cross would have no significance. None whatsoever. In him dwelled the fullness of God. That's why Paul, to the Corinthian Christians, he, he says, look. Look to the face of Jesus. We're, we're looking in the face of Jesus. Now, think about that for a minute. He's not saying that in the three years he's on the earth. He's saying that after Christ has ascended, after Paul has been converted, after Paul is planting churches and writing to churches. And he said, look in the face of Jesus, because there is where the glory is. Where do we find the face of Jesus? Where do we find the reality of Jesus? It's not in some kind of ritual. It's not in some kind of extra thing that the Gnostics could put on us to say, oh, but if you can do these things, if you can pray this way, or if you can go to this uh, pilgrimage or whatever, then you'll really, you'll really be spiritual. No, it's not that at all. You look for the face of Jesus in the Word of Jesus, in the Word of God, in His Holy Scriptures. Folks, we believe that. We believe that this is God's Word that's an eternal Word. That's just as much for you and me today as it was in Isaiah's day or Moses' day or Jesus' and Paul's day. It's the same today, yesterday, and forever, just like Jesus is. So he's the fullness of God. And then finally, it says Christ is the reconciler. He's already mentioned that a little bit back when he talked about delivering us from, from darkness into the kingdom of his Son and, and having redemption and forgiveness. But, but here he goes just maybe a little step further. He says, Christ is the reconciler, the only reconciler. He says there in verse 20, And through him, through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood of his cross. He's the reconciler through the cross. We, we always have a cross because that reminds us of the significance of his ministry on this earth. I, I read an article two weeks ago or three weeks ago right after Easter written by a Baptist. Not a Southern Baptist, but a Baptist. And he said this, he said, don't think for a minute that it was God's plan and purpose 
for Jesus to go to the cross. Obviously, his idea of inspired scripture is what I want to be inspired and what I want to be the word of God. It's not the fullness of the word of God. It is clear from the scripture that, that Christ going to the cross, Christ being delivered over, as Peter said on Pentecost, was by the pre, preordained plan and purpose of Almighty God. That was God's purpose. Because it's only through the blood of the cross that he can reconcile you and me to himself. It's through that blood. And a lot of people today they want to talk, don't want to talk about blood. Don't mention the blood. That's, that's bloody. That's gross. That's, uh, we don't like to think about it. If we go by and see somebody bleeding, we turn away from them because it's uneasy. I've got a child who, even when uh, she would cut herself as a, as, a, as a child, she would cut herself and boom, she'd hit the floor. Didn't like blood. But there is no Christianity apart from the blood of Christ. There is no Christianity apart from the fact that he has made peace, reconciling to himself all things by the blood of his cross. It was horrible on that cross. His blood was shed on that cross. But the thing about the cross that makes it so horrible and so difficult is, is that on that cross, he bore our sins. Just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. He bore our sins. He bore our iniquities in his own body for our forgiveness. And so for the church to understand the great truth that he is the head of the body, that he is the fullness of God, that he is the reconciler of all things and all men and women everywhere who trust in him to himself. What a glorious truth that is. And he does the work of salvation. We don't save ourselves. He does that work of salvation. One of my favorite songs, contemporary songs. We've sung several of my favorites today. One of my favorite contemporary songs is, is one that Andrew Peterson ends the Resurrection Letters Volume 1 with. And, and the title of it is All Things Together. And basically he's just singing Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you have the, well, you obviously have the internet if you're watching this morning because you're not here with us. But I would encourage you to go to YouTube and, and just search Andrew Peterson, All Things Together, because he takes these verses, and this is what he says. I won't sing it for you. I'll spare you that. But he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. By him all things were created in heaven and earth, seen and unseen, rulers and dominions and powers and kings. And then the chorus says, he holds all things, all things, all things together. Yes, he holds all things, all things, all things together. Then he ends that by saying, he made peace, he made peace. By the blood of his cross, he made peace. And you say, well, Bill, wait a minute. You just read his song, and that's, also, the scripture you just read, that's exactly right. That's a great singing of scripture. We ought to be singing more scripture. Because you know what? I dare say if you go listen to that just a few times, you'll be singing that more from memory than if you just went to Colossians 1 and said, I'm going to memorize this passage. Music implants itself in our mind. So go look it up, all things together. Listen to it and worship with it, even after we go off the air this morning. Folks, 
the thing we have to remember as Grace Baptist Church, the, things we, the thing we have to remember as believers is that Jesus Christ is preeminent. That means He's number one. He holds the first place in all things. He is Lord. He is King. He is Savior. He is Redeemer. He is Reconciler. He is all these things, but above everything else, He is Lord. Lord of creation. Lord of the church. Lord of every believer that puts their trust in Him and submits to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's Christ alone. We sang a few weeks ago that great contemporary hymn, In Christ Alone. That's what Paul is emphasizing right here. It is in Christ alone. You won't find, you, you won't find Christ, you won't find God, you won't find a relationship in ritual and in religious activity. You will find life, you will find hope, you will find peace. You will find redemption. You will find forgiveness of sins in Christ alone. In Christ alone. He and He alone, Paul says, is the image of the invisible God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. I invite you this morning just to consider Christ, who He is. Ask yourself, as Jesus asked those apostles in Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? I didn't finish that story. I went out on to what everybody else was saying, and and I did that in our own day. But then He turned to the disciples, and He said, well, who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up and boldly said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, you've spoken wisely. You've spoken truth. But you didn't learn that yourself. You didn't figure that out. My Father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. I invite you today, go to the Father and say, Lord, show me the Savior. Show me the Lord that I may bow before Him. Show me my sin and my need for Christ. and Show me Christ and come to Him. If you come to that point in your life and trust Christ, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is gracemail at gbcsomerset.com. Just send us an email or, or send us something on our Facebook page. We would love to hear from you. Get some material in your hand. Encourage you and pray with you in your new walk in Christ. Pray with me. Father, do your work as only you can. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, work in the lives of we who are believers to draw us closer by your word in the infinite supremacy of Christ. Teach us, O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.